This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I am one-third of uh, your, some of your favorite uh, sartorial history hosts. My name is Ben Bolin. I love that word, sartorial. It always makes me think of like a satyr, uh, which really would have more of a connection with our previous episode about the uh, absurdly debauched emperor Tiberius. But um, I wonder what's the etymology of sartorial, Ben? I'm Noel, by the way. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you asked. I, I have this one. So it comes from it comes from Sartor, Taylor in Latin, but that actually comes from Sarsir, which is to patch. So we're like patch people etymologically. Patch people, I love that. That very much ties in today's episode. Ben, is that also where seersucker comes from? I've always wondered about seersucking. I, you know, I don't know, Noel. I, uh, I do have a uh, seal sucker suit that I wear when the when when the season is right. You know, uh, I I love them. I highly recommend we all get one. Uh, you know, who, who especially could rock it is our super producer Casey Pegram. Casey, would you rock a seal sucker suit? You know, I would, Ben. <laughs> super producer Casey Pegram is nothing if not a true Southern gentleman. <laughs> 
<laughs> dapper. I like to stay dapper. Mm. No, we all have our own sort of, uh, you know, I wouldn't maybe go as far as to call us three walking fashion plates, though we are real uh, smoke shows. Uh, that's not our opinion. The internet voted. Uh, but I, I like to think we're we're aware of fashion trends. We're aware of how to present ourselves. We like cool shirts. You know, we like shoes. I'm digging myself a hole here, Noel. The point of this is we're talking about fashion. I'm even wearing pants today, Ben. So I, I really rose to the occasion for today's fashion-related episode. Um, and, you know, Seersucker uh, actually is is cotton fabric that has sort of these, like, pucker kind of, like, patterns on it, like where the, there's indentations in the fabric. And we are actually talking about cotton today, but we're talking about, like, an early form of upcycling in clothing, uh, one that started off as kind of a functional, practical use of materials that were otherwise going to go to waste and then kind of became a fashion thing and then kind of fell out of fashion again. Like that's sort of the nature of the word fashion, right? Sort of has its time in the sun and then it tends to kind of disappear as uh, people sort of move on to other stuff and materials. And we're not talking about seersucker. We're not talking about fine linens today. We're talking about sackcloth. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. The very same kind of sackcloth uh, that you'll hear in ancient text, you know, like they're clothed in sackcloth. It's that kind of stuff. So the long story short of this, of the origin here, is that at least a century before uh, what what soon may be called the first Great Depression in the U.S., uh, there was a uh, economic change in the way that goods were transported. See, before then, we used to haul grain and stuff like that, like potatoes, flour, staple sustenance in these in barrels. You would stack them in barrels, you would haul them, uh, and then they would get to their destination and you would trade barrels with people. But now, uh, you know, because of economy of scale, again, about a century before the Depression, in the 1800s, it became um, much more cost effective to transport this animal feed, these potatoes, this flour in sacks. You could stack it more efficiently. Uh, it was a little more resilient. And it was also now much cheaper to use fabric instead of lumber, right? Yeah, I mean, it was also way less heavy. I mean, the material in and of itself that was inside of the barrels was going to be super heavy. Not to mention when you, you know, wrap it in steel uh, kind of frames that, that make up the top and the spines of those barrels. And then the actual pieces of heavy lumber. Um, really, really logistically kind of absurd. So yeah, it was a big deal to be able to make that transition into, into transporting this stuff in fabric bags, cotton bags, in fact. Um, you could see those used by farmers uh, as early as the 1800s because um, they were also easier. Like you could like flop them over your shoulder on the way to, uh, you know, feeding the horses or whatever. Or if you're going to the, the, the granary, um, you could much more easily transport by hand hand one of these sacks as opposed to having to like you know whip out some sort of whatever the precursor to the hand truck is when did the hand truck come into being i don't know but there must have been something because it's not like you can carry a barrel by hand you could roll it i guess that's true I'm not thinking about that you can't roll a sack that is a one-up that the barrel has on the sack i will say if you had a big enough 
St. Bernard, like a Clifford the Red Dog level St. Bernard, you could maybe put it a barrel around its neck. But that's one barrel at a time for a huge dog. But yeah, you're right. You're right. These sacks had this um, this tremendous advantage. And I love that you're pointing out the fact about the weight, right? That That's huge. Uh, and the fact that the early bags were also something that you could you could make from a cottage industry. You know, cash-strapped farmers didn't have to have barrel-making skills. They could have this stuff sewn at home from cotton. And we know that, right, individual farmers were doing this in the early 1800s. By the late 1800s, people were mass-producing bags. There was some bright entrepreneur who saw some local farmers doing something, and then capitalism being what it is, they said, I'll just make the bags. Forget the flour. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And that's because of a little little invention called the sewing machine that really revolutionized and made an economy of scale uh, out of textiles, right? Um, But here's the thing. Uh, You know, what are you going to do with these bags when they're done? I mean, you got all these bags. What are you gonna do with your? You gotta have a bag hutch. You got. I need a bag for all my bags. Remember bag hutch? Was Ooh. that from Mister Show? I think it was from Mister Show. Casey Pegram. Oh yeah, Janine Garofalo is the uh, the hapless woman who doesn't know what to do with her bags, and she just throws her arms up in frustration, and goes, "Help me!" And then the bag hutch appears. What am I gonna do with all these bags? Well, that was a question very legitimately that um, housewives uh, were asking themselves in the early 1900s with all these mass produced bags laying around, uh, and it was also a time where it's not like they had ready-made fashion, you know? I mean, Ooh. there was a lot of DIY clothing being made, um, and these early forms of these bags were made out of like white or brown cotton fabric. They had a big old branded logo stamped on the front so you knew what company the bag came from. Um, And, you know, they did find, you know, kind of obvious go-to uses for them for like cleaning up around the house. They could repurpose them as rags or, you know, make it into a kind of a, a, a hand towel or whatever. But it was in the early 1910s that bags started being made out of lots of different kinds of fabric fabric that was maybe even a little bit appealing aesthetically right ben yep yep that's correct they were they were a tighter weave and they were also lighter which meant that they were softer they felt better on the skin which is hugely important because rural housewives recycled or it's better to say they upcycled these bags they made them everything from undergarments to dresses, to bed sheets and curtains. But here, here's the issue with this. At this point, it's very uncool. There's a, there's a great article in New Prairie Press about this and also a good one in Vintage News. But at first, and spoiler alert, my family had some distant personal experience with this in Appalachia. At first, it wasn't cool to wear these and kids, you know, would be made fun of or you'd be the poor kid in your neighborhood if you were playing with your friends and someone saw your underwear and your underwear said like, you know, Jiminy McCrikey's fine flour and potato sprouts or something because they would know that you were poor. And The problem is that people who are living in these places, in these rural populations, especially in the early 1900s, man, they didn't have access uh, to travel to a store. And if they traveled to a lot of stores, they didn't have the means to spend money there buying custom-made underwear or dresses at the store if they did travel there. 
And that's where they started calling this stuff. Uh, what, what's that term? Chicken linen. Yeah, there's a bunch of good resources on this stuff with some really great images. And one of them is in flashback with no C. Uh, it's very edgy site dot com uh, called Feed Sack Fashions and Patterns of Depression Era America, where you can really get a look at some of these. And there actually is a place in Inglewood, Tennessee called the Textile Museum. Um, and there's some really cool quotes uh, of the time from, um, you know, women particularly that were making these repurposing these goods. Uh, one of them was uh, uh, I watched washed five feed sacks and made me a bedspread. You know, it's just really pithy and to the point. Um, and yeah, it's true. Women were, uh, most exclusively women, were making these garments now. Um, and not to mention things like bedspreads and, and uh, curtains mm-hmm. out of these leftover sacks. And the companies that were printing the, their, lo- their logos on those sacks really started to take notice and started to realize that, huh, it's it's coming to the point where the decision on which feed to buy is based more on how nice looking the fabric of the bag is than it is on the actual company or on brand loyalty. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. one particular company that was really early to the party on this uh, called Gingham Girl Flower. And you might have heard the name Gingham referred to in fashion as Gingham Dresses, right? Yeah, yeah. And you can also uh, check out on that flashback article, you can check out some of the patterns that they use. Now, I love that point about this being something that can influence a farming family's decision or a rural decision about what feed to buy. Because imagine you're a cash-strapped uh, couple of parents, right? And you want to get Uh, your kids, some new clothes, but you can't afford all of that. So now you can say, hey, this is a great way to surprise my kids as well. It's a treat. And there's a 1921 issue of a magazine called American Cookery. I love when people add the E-R-Y on stuff. American Cookery that uh, talked about it this way. They said, in homes where little folks are growing up, not a scrap of sack and need must be wasted, for each sack takes the place of an equal quantity of muslin, since there are so many necessary little garments to be made. The sacking, while not fine in quality, is most serviceable for drawers, petticoats, underwaists, etc. These garments may be made plain or have a touch of crochet or toshan lace for the trimming. Oh my my! <laughs> I know, give right? him, you, you're, you're giving me the the vapors right now with this voice, Ben Bolin. I love it. Yeah, uh, it's great. There's actually a really cool book on the subject called "Feed Sack to Clothes Rack." Love a good rhyme. Uh, the use of commodity textile bags in American households from 1890 to 1860. And there's a really great quote in that book that that takes this even further um, in terms of how kind of the workflow of this situation kind of came together. Um, quote, once the fabric was prepared, there was very little difference between a length of feed sack dress percale, which refers to a, a type of knit, uh, a weave uh, in, in cloth that's actually pretty fine. It's used for, you know, sheets and stuff. Um, continue. And a length Length of dress percale purchased in a store as a new yard good. Uh, the Percy Kent Bag Company hired top textile designers from Europe and New York City to create stylish prints with color fast dyes. Yeah, yeah. And it goes on to talk about uh, how in 1927, three yards of dress prints cotton percale, the, the kind of stuff you would use to make an average adult dress, it would cost 60 cents if you got it from Sears and Roebuck. We just can't get away from Sears in any shows about this time in history. Uh, but by comparison, 
three yards of gangan dress could cost 40 cents and three yards of the gangam used in that brand we mentioned earlier, Noel, gingham girl flower sacks, they could be salvaged after the use of two or three 100-pound bags of flour. So you could buy – it's like imagine imagine you could buy an amazing snack. Like you bought, you bought bags of Doritos, and every bag of Doritos you got turned into actually a pretty nifty shoe when you were done eating. It makes me think of that, that – I've been re-watching The Office since I know it's uh, not long for this world on Netflix. And there's a part in one of the later episodes where Kevin uh, has this brilliant idea called the Big Mac idea where he says if every time you order a Big Mac you take one ingredient and set it aside and then at the end of the week you've got enough to make yourself a new Big Mac and the kicker is you love it more because you made it with your own hands oh wow I love that should I watch The Office I watched the British one what it's fent yes you should watch The Office it's wonderful I've I've probably rewatched the whole series like nine times it's my like comfort food TV show I'm gonna be really bummed when it goes because of course NBC is making their own streaming service we'll see how oh that god who is it you know yeah. uh, I'm bummed. On, casey is gonna make all our zoom calls part of his streaming service and i'm not mad at you casey it's we all signed the papers i just i didn't know you would do it i know i know it's uh it's casey's nothing if not a uh an entrepreneur and these are our troubled times this episode of ridiculous history is brought to you by uber teen Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car is called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your teen enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off the that's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. 
Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. There's another quote I love from this flashback.com article. Uh, I believe this is from the textile museum as well. Uh, and this is someone referring to the concept we mentioned earlier about how husbands started kind of getting the drift and making choices based more on the type of fabric that it would produce rather than like have some kind of brand loyalty or like the quality of the feed. Uh, she said, uh, this, this woman that was quoted, we had two big chicken houses and used 14 sacks of feed every week. My husband got most of the sacks. He always tried to get two or three of the same pattern so we would have enough to make something. He did a pretty good job of picking them out. So he knew he knew what was up. He was buying those those bags to suit his wife, uh, to keep her happy so that, you know, they could make matching garments as opposed to having to stitch them together because it became, uh, really important to try to like, you know, it's the same idea as like making kind of, um, DIY like luxury goods today. It reminds me of a, oh gosh, uh, RIP Super Deluxe, by the way. Uh, they had a really cool web series called Cheap Thrills with this guy named Nate who goes by the oh, yeah. uh, the, the pseudonym at Tabasco Sweet. And he shows you how to like DIY up everything from like Gucci slides to like, you know, Louis Vuitton belt bags and stuff using like a trusty uh, uh, exacto blade and some tape and uh, some like you know, puff paint and like a little bit of uh, ingenuity. And that's what this kind of became because there was a stigma uh, that came along with wearing these sack clothes. Uh, it was a sign of, of, you know, being poor. And so um, people would go to great lengths to try to make them pass for, you know, again, ready-made clothing wasn't exactly a thing, at least in the way we know it with like fast fashion and like H&M mm. and Madewell and all that. But they didn't want to be pegged as you're wearing sack clothes. Yeah. So before the uh, global exploitation slash slavery chains responsible for for fast fashion were were in play, uh, a lot of U.S. households had figured out some fantastic rules, some fantastic uh, techniques and strategies to make sure that your kid or your family members weren't mocked for uh, being this frugal. So it's weird because now we look back on it like, how charming, how American dream, how industrious and clever. But people wanted to hide that they were doing this. At least at first, they would uh, they would soak off all those logos, you know, the gingham girls and so on. They would dye the fabrics different colors. Perhaps most importantly, they would add stuff to it, right? You would add some ribbons, you would embroider, you know, on, on the shoulders, right? Or on the hem, you would also add buttons, things that made it look like, hey, my parents bought this at a store, but it's just not a store you've been to because it turns out that you, my friend, are the poor one. So maybe it's a little, uh, it's a little more American in that regard than, than we'd like to admit. But there were also a lot of like, um, 
there was a lot of advice, like textile manufacturers. One thing I think is amazing, they participated in this. You can find online a book by the Textile Bag Manufacturers Association from all the way back in 1933. They published a pamphlet called Sewing with Cotton Bags, and it, it, it gave you advice on how to get logos out of the sack. And it was pretty, you know, uh, it was pretty involved. You had to soak it overnight in lard or kerosene. Yikes. And then even the companies, the companies helped erase their own logos eventually. They changed ink in the 1930s so that these households wouldn't have to spend all night soaking their kids' future clothes in kerosene. Can you imagine, Ben? I, 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 I wouldn't think that that smell would be very easy to get out. Kerosene-soaked clothes? I bet that would take a while. Some serious washing. So pretty cool that the companies were, like, on board with this. But it wasn't, like, purely, like, altruistic either, was it? I mean, they definitely had motivations. This was essentially walking uh, billboards for their products, you know? The way, like, a NASCAR driver has all those, like, logos all over their racing suit, whatever you call that thing. Uh, let's, uh, let's call it their action suit. I like action Love suit. It. <laughs> Love it. So you're right, man. This was, this, this was a uh, perfect storm of aligning interests. And despite, you know, the, at times, uh, awkwardness or the social opprobrium that would be heaped on the less fortunate when they were wearing these, uh, clothes made from feed sacks, the first great depression changed everything at the time, you know, the wave crashed, the roaring 20s hit the shore and then created uh, the wreckage that we refer to as the, uh, you know, the the 30s, the Great Depression. Uh, there's an article from History.com that mentions at the lowest point of the Great Depression, some 15 million Americans were unemployed. U.S. residents were unemployed. Half of the country's banks had failed. Uh, that's 15 million out of uh, 122,770,000. So a lot of people were out of work. Half the banks were gone. People were in dire straits. Everybody had to make do, even the people who once used to laugh at the idea of being this creative. Yeah. So the folks who had already kind of mastered this technique were ahead of the curve. And and it's sort of like, ha ha, you mocked us uh, then, but look at you now. You don't know how to sew, suckers. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully they came together, but you're absolutely right. The old people were making not just curtains now, but they're making diapers, awnings, really anything that you look around, like depending on where you are in your house or outside now, you look around Anything that you see could have been made from that kind of fabric was made from uh, this feed sack cloth at this time. And businesses, of course, are struggling to stay solvent. So they started doubling down on this. You know, they said, look, we can get more people to buy more cotton if we just package it. They were like, for God's sake, keep the lights on. We have to be on board with what's happening. They even did a... Um, they did a fashion show, right? That's right. They had a feed sack fashion shows. That was sort of a popular attraction, kind of a, you know, what do you call it? Like a publicity stunt kind of situation. And there was a real focus on actually having these uh, sack fabrics um, have 
colorful prints uh, that would be appealing to to women. Um, and there would be lots of like flowers and kind of, you know, suns and, and little patterns that, you know, you would think of in terms of those types of dresses. It very much became this intentional thing. Uh, and then feed stores actually became fabric stores. It started to be a thing where like you they, they were sort of one in the same um, and you could buy like bolts of the stuff. Right. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And they would even uh, also print. Not, not all of these were, were meant to be dresses later or curtains. Some even had printed patterns to make dolls or clothes for your dolls or other things. And so you could also you wouldn't maybe just buy a dress for a kid. You would also maybe be buying a present for their birthday later. And this is nuts. People were surprised uh, by how how the market responded. Just like you said, man, these turned into fabric stores, at least as much as feed companies. And there, there are a couple of interesting firsthand accounts you can read. We found some good ones in uh, digitalcommons.unl.edu. That edu at the end makes you real, you know, lets you know that it's a good one. <laughs> it absolutely adds an air of gravitas to it. And by the way, just this is into the 40s. Uh, so yeah. I jumped the gun ever so slightly by saying that in the 30s, um, this this transition from feed stores exclusively to feed stores slash fabric stores happened. But it was around 19, you know, 45 or so that this there kind of became this lack of distinction and the two kind of really blurred together. And the old school feed salesman of the time didn't cotton to this uh too well did they ben right it was like look i'm just trying to sell you chicken feed and gober sprorgensen's 100 certified non-cannibal chicken feed is the chicken feed you need i feel like you're just buying this because of the the dress print and then this was a real complaint because people were getting requests to move like these are not small bags either to move hundreds of pounds of bags of chicken feed just to get to the dress pattern that someone likes. So it's more like they're showing them dresses instead of selling them the product they thought they were selling. And you had to, one, one guy remembers he had to go to the feed store as a teenager. And when he did, he and his buddies had to like posse up. They had to Wu-Tang up, assemble their Avengers because they knew that his mom always seemed to want the dress patterns on the bottom of the pile. So he and his buddies would have to take turn, like hauling these sacks off until they got the patterns his mom wanted. And then they also noticed that this applied to other things. So like uh, they, they would buy, they would buy a brand of something called egg mash. Right. And this sounds very gendered, but this is how it was reported at the time. They would say essentially if the, wife of the farmer already had a pattern from something else like flour or potatoes or something. Uh, if she already had that existing pattern and she wanted another pattern to match, then that's what the, that's what the family would buy. They would just buy whatever matched, not what was, it didn't matter what was in the sack. It didn't matter what was in the sack. Slap that on a t-shirt. I don't know why. I just like the way it sounds. Yeah, egg mash is like a particular type of feed for hen for laying hens that they uh, they would put out, um, and so that was a thing that was that was obviously really important for these folks that had hen houses. But then we get into World War II and uh, the early post-war years, and cotton 
became a, a real commodity, more so than before, because there was a shortage, uh, even in the civilian uh, space. And recycling all the stuff that these farmers have been doing all along became an absolute necessity and was actually encouraged by uh, the government. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car is called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. World War II brought uh, a lot of industrial shortages to the forefront. You know, you had to support almost two separate states of people fighting both in the East and the West, and they had supply chains that went across the world. So they, all the, all the companies start leaning heavily toward patriotism. And they said, you know, recycling cotton now it started off as something that people used to make fun of. Then it became something that everybody kind of understood. And now it became something that was actively encouraged. 
Uh, we found a newspaper column from May of 1944 that says, Best of all is the patriotic spirit you show when you salvage fabrics. The housewife who converts cotton bags into the many useful items they are capable of becoming under the magic of willing hands and minds not only serves herself, but can serve essential fabrics for her country. Textile Bag Manufacturers Association, we mentioned them before. They had lines like, a yard saved is a yard gained for victory. Yes, love that. <laughs> love that. They're really getting in on that uh, uh, nationalistic, propagandistic uh, fervor there, aren't they? Um, and it's crazy because these feed stores literally became like the fast fashion, even though it was slow fashion, like, you know, boutiques of the time. Because um, store-bought clothes were really hard to come by. And so these little mom-and-pop kind of shops uh, with handmade goods um, really were kind of taking over. And bag manufacturing really felt that uh, that you know uh, pressure to make sure that they were catering to that audience um, and including you know keeping up to the latest trends with their their prints and, and the colors that the bags were uh, you know dyed um, and it's crazy too how much this really created a huge boon for the uh, U.S. economy in the form of the American cotton industry. Uh, One thousand two hundred eighty-three million yards of cotton fabric were used in the these bags, uh, and that accounted for eight percent of the entirety of all cotton goods uh, produced, and four point five percent of the total cotton consumption in the United States in the year nineteen forty six. Big deal. Yeah, and they they also gave um, they also gave women living in the rural demographic who have been treated so horribly for so long by so much of society. It gave them this sense of agency and a sense of fashion. There were these sewing contests that were organized for women who had, again, in many cases, been at this for decades. You know, they were the hipsters who were in, in it before it was cool, right? And, and, and so they, they were able to show off their skills. Uh, manufacturers would show off their designs. As, as you said, people were selling off surplus bags. And you can still see examples of very high-quality dresses, just objectively, that were made by different people across the U.S., yeah, and there, it even kind of like bled into pop culture in the early 50s. Marilyn Monroe posed for this really high-profile uh, photo wearing a burlap sack, a potato sack. Um, and it was a, kind of a publicity stunt that was set up by the studio uh, because there's a couple of versions of the story. Either she was called, uh, you know, kind of a classless waif by some sort of like prudish, you know, a female journalist. Um, and this was her, you know, saying that she was better suited to wearing a potato sack and so this was her response to that or um, there was the notion that someone said oh Marilyn so beautiful she would look good wearing a, even a potato sack uh, so 20th Century Fox set up this shot and you can definitely catch a look at that online as well um, but you know, like we said, fashions come and fashions go, and this one definitely went. And 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 what cotton feed sacks were once to those barrels, paper bags became much more of a uh, a cost effective thing. I mean, you look today, uh, there's it's it's kind of a fancy little gimmick for a company to you know sell their goods in. Uh, cotton sacks you know oh, yeah. that sort of a high-end bag of rice you know if it comes in a little sack with a drawstring typically it's all going to be paper like this like look yeah i don't know if you guys can see this but i've got a, a a glass bottle here where i bought fancy milk just so i could use this as a container for my iced coffee 
for time, you know, from now on forever. Uh, you're right, man. Paper is just easier to use. It's way more cost effective and it's because of economy of scale. Remember this, this story that we're spinning today comes from a time when a huge amount of chicken farms were smaller operations. And now it's been all kind of, um, uh, agglomerated, right? Monopolized. Well, not monopolized, but you know what I mean? Consolidated. This yarn that we're spinning, Ben? There we are. There we are. We got there. And here we go. And here we go. Uh, yeah, but like, you know, the feed sack industry really became kind of, you know, like uh, you think of paper sacks as like disruptive technology in the same way that 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 fabric sacks were to, to barrels. Uh, and in the late 50s, it all but ceased to exist. Um, and there were a couple of attempts to kind of bring it back by printing like comics and cartoons on them, like Buck Rogers and like Disney uh, types, you know, you know, princess stories like Cinderella. And there was uh, like an advertising campaign on TV that was trying to get American housewives back into it. But it just, it, the moment was gone. Um, and uh, like we said, it is something that you definitely see um, like on Etsy stores uh, and, you know, in like vintage clothing markets. It's certainly something that, you know, is a is a look and is a style that is fondly remembered and, you know, um, something that people can still do themselves, you know, with this kind of uh, patchwork kind of mentality. And it's it's really interesting. I really like this story a lot, Ben. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think in my family, there's still a few examples of this stuff. People aren't wearing them day to day, right? But, you know, they save them because it's part of history. And of course, as anybody can tell you, uh, this is this is not to say that there's no such thing as cotton dresses now. They're obviously everywhere. They just didn't have chicken feed in them first. Uh, you know, I agree. This is an inspiring story. Uh, it's a story of ingenuity. It's also a story of the fickle whims of fashion. If you are interested in hearing more about the history of fashion, we'd like to recommend a show I believe we mentioned in a previous episode, which is our peer podcast, Dressed. Now, without uh, without telling too many tales out of school, as they might say in Tennessee, uh, super producer, Casey Pegram. Uh, Casey, I, I understand you're affiliated with Dressed. That is true. Dressed is uh, one of the other shows here at iHeart that I produce every week, so um, we come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The show is hosted by April Callahan, Cassidy Zachary. They're both fashion historians and, you know, just lifelong followers of uh, fashion trends. And yeah, the show, the show every week looks at a different kind of period of fashion history. Sometimes it's contemporary, sometimes it's in the past and really goes into all the kind of historical um, influences and forces at work that kind of shape fashion because you realize that fashion and fashion history is just another way of doing kind of world history, political history, and so on. So it's a very, very interesting topic. I can absolutely attest to that. Really great show. And and, and they have a really cool uh, rapport. They're lifelong friends and colleagues and uh, really, really enjoyable. And it also, uh, we mentioned it made the list uh, uh, in uh, Vanity Fair that we were a part of uh, last week. Um, really high quality stuff. Um, happy to have them in the family. Um, huge thanks to you, super producer Casey Pegram, for all the work you do on this show and Dressed and Stuff You Missed in History Class. Uh, we couldn't do it without you. Big, big thanks to Christopher Hasiotis here at Spirit, Alex Williams, who composed our theme. 
Big thanks to Gabe Luzier. Big thanks, of course, to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, who I need I need to write back. He actually, I think he misses us. He sent us an email recently uh, where, where he said, you know, he said, like, I will rain wrath upon you uh, like I curse you to the nth generation. It's like his way of saying he misses us. Basically, you know, mm-hmm. that's Jonathan speak for I hope you guys are well. Did you get one of those postcards made up of like cut out letters from different like magazines and stuff? No, it was weird. He just uh, he sent me a uh, like it looks like a close up picture of my parents sleeping. I don't know how he got into the house, but, you know, I, I like to think that was like an I miss you Ben kind of thing on his part. Uh, He's probably just looking out for your folks on your behalf. <laughs> sure. It was definitely an altruistic move. Yeah. So thanks to you, Jonathan, if you're if you're listening. Uh, thanks, of course, as always, to our peer podcasters, including Eve's Jeffcoat, and thanks to you, uh, Noel Brown. I, I know we've got a we got a call it a day, so we'll just let people know. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, we'd like to recommend our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians. We want to hear your stories of fashions of yesteryear, especially if they are what you would call ridiculous. You can also find us on individuals on the internet you surely can you can find me exclusively on instagram where i am at how now noel brown and you can find me on twitter where i'm at ben bullen hsw and i am at ben bullen on instagram we'll see you next time folks for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.